Welcome to the Family Church Sermon Podcast. Join us each week as we look to the Bible to seek out what it means to love God passionately and love people personally. For more information about our weekly gatherings and how you can be part of our outreach, visit jointhefamily.church. Our sermon series that we're starting is called Forward Together, and God's given Family Church a mission and vision to see people all across New Orleans love God passionately and love Him personally. And so we won't, till our dying breath, we will fulfill that great commandment that God has given us to love God and to love people. I'd like to invite you to open up to the book of Haggai. If you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand and Abel in the back, he'll grab you one. Um, If you need a Bible, we'd love for you to follow along. We'll have some of the words on the screen, but they may not always be there during the whole message today. And so you'll definitely want to look back. I don't know, have you ever, uh, let me show a hands, anybody ever like personally studied the book of Haggai or know what it's about? Anybody? Laura and I did because we read it together uh, at the beach a few weeks ago, but uh, (laughs) I'm throwing you under the bus. I'm sorry, babe. Um, But it's not really a book that we typically uh, go to too often. Uh, Haggai is one of the 12 minor prophets that in the Old Testament And I had a whole sermon series back with my first church plant called uh, What's So Minor About These Prophets? And we went through 12 weeks and one week kind of highlighting each book. And if you didn't know the the minor prophets, like the book of Jonah is probably the most well-known of those books, Amos, Obadiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, some of those books. These, they're not minor in significance. They're called the minor prophets just because they're shorter and smaller than, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah. But these books were really centered around um, God preparing his people for exile, during exile, and after exile. So if you know something about Israel... Uh, we introduced, uh, actually we introduced Ashton the other night. Y'all ever see the, in the 90s, the cartoon, The Prince of Egypt? Y'all ever saw that old cartoon? And uh, now it's an old cartoon, you know, and uh, we had never shown it to Ashton. We watched it the other day. If you know the story of God's people, they were enslaved in, in Egypt. Then they get, then they get uh, rescued by God through the work of Moses and they, the whole parting of the Red Sea, the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, wandering in the wilderness. Joshua ends up bringing them into the Promised Land 40 years later, and then they get the Promised Land, Canaan. And then they're eventually, uh, they eventually they get God's Promised Land, but what they do is even when God blesses them with what he promised, they don't steward it properly. And so they divide, they fight with one another, there are multiple kings, they're worshiping pagan idols, all these things, everything going If you think things are wrong in Bourbon Street, New Orleans, well, ancient Israel probably has us beat, you know. And uh, so what happened was the empire of Assyria, they conquered uh, the northern kingdom. Then the Israel had split in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they'd split in the northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And then the southern kingdom is conquered by Babylon. And then the way it goes during that day is the evil empires all end up conquering one another. And so uh, Babylon conquers Assyria, but then the, the Babylon empire is conquered eventually by Persia. 
And Persia is Iran, actually, used to be called Persia. Persia is kind of that modern-day Iran, and their empire at the time went into Iraq and Syria and some of those other Mesopotamian countries. And the leader of Persia, Cyrus, he decrees an edict in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Y'all know we have books in the Bible like 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and 1st and 2nd Corinthians that we know go together. You might not know, if you were with Family Church last year, you know, but you might not know that Ezra and Nehemiah were once considered one book and they're just split. And so in the New Testament, Luke and Acts are the same way. There was kind of volume one and volume two, but it's split up really just for the, the way that the Bible flows and, and through history it had been split. And the book of Ezra and Nehemiah deals with Israel coming back into the promised land. Now Israel had built a, a nice temple. Solomon had built this glorious temple, but when Nebuchadnezzar came and he he brought Egypt, he brought, uh, not Egypt, Israel into Babylonian captivity. They destroyed the temple. Now that was important because we talked last week uh, when we wrapped up Revelation, we talked about how uh, we will be with God and we will be his people. And there's not going to be a temple in heaven because God is going to be there. And now even as his New Testament people, the temple of the living God, the Holy Spirit lives in us. So we don't, uh, what makes this a church is not the walls or the steeple. In fact, we don't have a steeple out at, in Kenner, right, at our Kenner property. What makes us a church is not the building. What makes it a church is the people that occupy it, right? Because we're the church. We're the temple of the living God. And so what happens here is Haggai finds himself... If you go back to the book of Ezra, you see that they rebuild the altar, then they rebuild the temple, then in Nehemiah, they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. All these were important to an ancient Judean city. And what happens is in, is in Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, we're told that the prophets Haggai and, and, and Zechariah both prophesied to God's people who had become discouraged in rebuilding the temple. They had become discouraged because some of their enemies, the Samaritans, and some of their other enemies surrounding them had, had really discouraged them from getting to work on what God had told them to do. And the reason it was so important to rebuild the temple, because this is the Old Testament, that's where God's presence was. That was the center of who they were. And so that really brings us to the book of Haggai. If you didn't know this, the Bible's not always completely chronological. If we were going to go completely chronologically, you would have Ezra 1 through 6, and then it would be split and it would be broken up. And then you'd have the books of Haggai and Zechariah. And then uh, after that, you wouldn't even get back into Ezra. The book of Esther then takes place. And then in, in chapter 7 of, of the book of Ezra, you go back into that, and then Nehemiah follows that up. And so the book of Haggai is happening right in the middle of the book of Ezra when God's people are called back to Israel, and they have not yet, as his people, finished the job that God had called them to do. Is that enough of an explanation to get us <laughs> to get us introduced to the book of Haggai? Let's read. We're going to read the whole first chapter. It's only two chapters, so it's not going to be uh, that hard to get through. But um, let's read the first chapter of the book of Haggai. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, 
the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, who was the governor of Judah, and to uh, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And this is his, his prophecy to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord, and this is emphasized because these aren't Haggai's words, these are from God, came to the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown or invested much and you've harvested very little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drank, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns rages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Holes in their pockets, right? Do we, can, do we not, um, this is in scripture, I'm just asking, do we not live maybe in a world that feels this way today? Verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it, to, brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house... It is because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you will withhold the dew, and the earth will withhold its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on the ground that brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. Then verse 12, Then Haggai, the son of Shatil, and Joshua, the son of Zehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message and said, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Zehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, and on the 24th day in the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that this, uh, Lord, even this uh, random section of scripture that maybe we don't always look at in the Old Testament is two chapters in the book of Haggai. God, we thank you that even today, opening your word, there is a powerful reminder to your people to be faithful. So Lord, just as you called upon Israel to consider their ways, Lord, I pray that we would consider our ways. And Lord, just as you promised that you would be with them in their midst, Lord, today we rest in the promise that you are here. Help us to be reminded of that. It's in your, glory, in your name and fame that we pray. Amen. Sermon today is entitled, Forward Work. 
forward work. Israel had work that was, uh, that was right in front of them for them to do. And this is the big idea. God's people do God's work. Let me repeat that over and over today. God's people do God's work. We are the hands and feet of the King of Kings. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. In fact, people can read, read words of the Bible and there's power in them, but they see the words of the Bible fleshed out in you and me. We are a mirror, we, sometimes a broken mirror, but, but Jesus puts that mirror back together. We are a mirror of God's glory and his radiance and his promise to the people. God's people do his work and God is calling family church as a people to do his work. We live in a city that has um, that doesn't thrive when it comes to like having faith in Jesus Christ. Do y'all know that the evangelical population in New Orleans is right around forty thousand people? Y'all, we have a million people in Greater New Orleans. Jefferson Parish was at four fifty, five hundred, something like that. A little bit bigger than Orleans Parish, which I think is around the four hundred mark. But then you consider St. Tammany and St. Charles and St. Bernard and Plaquemine. We have about a, mil, a little over a million, I think it's 1.2 million people in what they consider greater New Orleans. And out of that, there are 40,000 evangelical Christians. Which means, I watched the Saints preseason game last night and was excited at the very beginning. The latter half of the preseason game when the like fourth string plays is usually terrible, if you ever watch, you know. But I was still excited that there was football on and what it means is the sad reality is in our city on Sundays when the Superdome is filled we have more Saints fans in our city than we have Saints and so we have a work to do we have a work to do we know that there are churches that are doing great work in our city and the reality is if you take two of our sister churches which are Celebration Church and Franklin Avenue Baptist Church, if you take those two sister churches of ours out of the equation, there's a remnant of us doing work here in the city. So I don't want you to ever get discouraged. You are doing a great work. You're doing a great work by being a part of Family Church, and God has called Family Church to a great work. In fact, the Bible says not to despise small beginnings, right? And that the end of, the, end of a thing is better than its beginning, the book of Ecclesiastes says. And so we know, we just read the book of Revelation, we know where we're going, we know that the war's already won, but right now it feels like war, and it feels hard, and it feels as if some days that we're beaten up, some days that we have nowhere to go. Even family church, when did we form? We formed by way of vote from Crossroads Community Church, March 1st, 2020, and in fact, the Board of Restoration Church voted the next week. And then I think around March 14 or 15 of 2020, the world completely shut down. We had planned for Easter Sunday to be the first time that we started gathering as a church and then maybe start to gather in person over the summer of March 2020, and the world completely shut down. We had a grand opening that was planned for the weekend after Labor Day last year, and then Hurricane Ida rolled through. Right, we're all, how many people were nervous when you saw the little podunk tropical depression that wasn't gonna do anything? I, it gave me PTSD, even just seeing anything in the Gulf, right? That didn't develop into anything, did it? No, just some rain, you know, but still it gives all of us PS, PTSD, right? 
And so last year we knew that, hey, something different happened. We're actually not in the location that we own right now. But like Israel, they were ripped, maybe because of some of their own choices, maybe they were ripped out of their promised land and they were in Babylon. And do you know when Jeremiah gives that prophecy about, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? Y'all have heard that verse? Y'all know when he's given that prophecy, it's to people who are not in their homeland that are being persecuted. And so the plans that God had for his people weren't exactly what they wanted. But he still had a way through it. And so what he does is he provides a way, and Israel returns through the Edict of Cyrus, and then Darius, uh, the next king, sends another wave back and, and rediscovers the, the, the Edict of Cyrus. And we see that a wave of, of Israel's uh, people is led from, by Zerubbabel, and then we have Ezra leading a wave, we have Nehemiah leading a wave. And out of all of those people, out of the 50 years that they spent in captivity, out of the two million people that made up Israel, only about 50,000 of them returned. Only about 50,000 of them returned because it was much easier to stay in Babylon. They had learned that they could make money and they could thrive in Babylon. Many of us, we're living there right now where we think we're doing well, right? We're not obeying God's word, but we think we're thriving. And living in Babylon sometimes seems easier. Less than 3% of God's people returned, returned with the remnant to build and rebuild Jerusalem. So here's the first point that we see. God's people often ignore God's commands. So we see that God's people are the ones who do God's work, but the counter to that is that God's people often ignore God's commands. Have you ever ignored what God called you to do? Hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm guilty of it. Guilty as charged. God's people often ignore God's commands. What we, let me reread these first four verses. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, uh, which Darius followed up Cyrus, who's the one who sent the first wave of Israelites back, about 18 years later, Darius becomes king. And in the sixth month, which the sixth month in their calendar was about August. This book is taking place from about August to December, the four months that this book has taken place. Y'all know, it's kind of it's unique. Where do we find ourselves? We have a lot of work to do from August to December. And that's not why. That just kind of clicked last night when I was looking over my notes. But God doesn't do anything by accident, right? So here he finds these people at the beginning of, of August, and it says it's the sixth month and the first day of the month. And in fact, the first day of the month was a moment in the law where there should have been great rejoicing in God's temple where special offerings, the book of Numbers told tell us, were to be brought into the, to the tabernacle and the temple, the presence of God. And in fact, Haggai's name meant festival. And he saw nothing like that. He saw no joy. He saw people that were focused on their own, need, on their own needs. People that were living in paneled houses. And you might say, well, I took down those panels when I renovated, right? But back in ancient Israel, to have panels, to have walls was a, a big deal. And in fact, it mirrored what, how Solomon built his temple. So what we see in verse 2 is, Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that a time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So they're saying, hey, we, we, we're not, 
the time hasn't come for us to finish God's house. We worked for a few years, but now here we are. We're 16 years of being lazy later because we got discouraged while we were rebuilding it. And y'all know when God calls you to any sort of work, you're going to get discouraged, right? Y'all, I'm discouraged every time I meet with a contractor in Kenner. I'm being honest with you. I'm discouraged all the time. In fact, we rejoice at some of the people who God had moved and moved them on, but I got discouraged when some of my friends moved from town. Y'all know what I'm saying? I mean, y'all miss the Farleys? Y'all miss Andre? Like, we miss people, right? We can get discouraged, but we can't ignore what God called us to do. We've got to do what he's called us to do. And do what, do what Haggai challenged Israel to do. In verse 4, it says, it is time for you yourse- Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruins? We can't ignore what God has called us to do. And I'm not stretching this analogy too far. The house of the Lord then was a temple. And we know that the building that we're trying to rehab in Kenner isn't a temple. We're the temple. But God has given us assets and properties in order so that we can reach people far from him. And so God has given us a mission. We can't ignore what he has called us to do. In fact, Haggai looked at people who were suffering. And are you tired in here? I'm tired. I don't know if if you're tired. I'm, I'm a little refreshed. Went to the beach a few weeks ago. I'd say I'm refreshed. But then Laura and I, like, there's times where we're just like, man, we're tired. We're tired. What Haggai did is he looked at ancient Israel. He looked at people who were tired right in the face and said, get to work just as God has called you to get to work. So we don't have an excuse. We have to get to work. We have to do what God has called us to do because our inclination is not to do this. Philippians 2.21 says, all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. All seek their own interests, not those of of Jesus Christ. Our heart is ultimately prone to worship the person that we look right in the mirror every morning. But God has called us to not just look out for our own interests, but ultimately his interests, which is the people far from him that need to know him. So second point is this, God's people often ignore his commands. And then second, God's people invest in his promise. God's people invest in God's promises. Let me say again, God's people invest in God's promises. How are we called to invest? Well, the church, we do it. We have an offering at the end. We take an offering every week. It's not so that we're not a country club. You don't pay dues to kind of become a part of the church. Even we use this term member, and it's not like being a member in any sort of rotary or country club. It's a member in the fact that you, like Laura and I, are now reading together in 1 Corinthians, every part of the body has a different function, and we submit to one another, right, out of love and obedience to God. God's people invest in God's promises through our time, our talent, and our treasure. Y'all know we have, well, we have a few kids here, and we have kids that have shown up here. So God's people invest by, generationally, we invest in in youth and kids and all that. Like God has called us to get to work. We invest kind of like when we came over here to one of the greatest things that I've seen us do as a church, other than our outreach after Hurricane Ida, was I love the actually the first Sunday that we ever met Travis in the sound booth. We came over here to pull some weeds 
and put mulch down and get this property ready because we were about to be kicked out of our home, exiled out of our home over here. And I loved, we, we used our time and our talent and, and we just came and we gave, we gave. God calls his people to give and we do it through our investment. Whatever means something to you, if God ultimately doesn't own it, he does not own you. And so we see in verse five, that Haggai's prophecy begins with, consider your ways. This is stark, but it's, it's also gracious. And he'll repeat this three more times in the book where we, we are called to consider. Y'all know Jesus told us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything will be added to you. We always have to consider our ways. I like to ask the question every day, have you read your Bible? Have you prayed? Have you shared your faith? That's my childhood pastor used to ask those questions. I ask myself those questions every day. Because I'll tell you, reading my Bible and praying are pretty, they, they come easier to me. But it's the sharing my faith part. Because sometimes I just don't feel like it. You ever in a, a hurry to get somewhere and you see that person with a flat tire or somebody in need and they have an opportunity to share or maybe somebody's talking about spiritual things and they, you have an opportunity to share and you just don't want to do it. No, we're human. Let's be honest. Sometimes we just don't want to do it. We're tired. But God calls us to consider our ways and to seek first his kingdom. If, in fact, Israel had been away for 50 years, you've got to think the farmlands that they were now farming were 50 years unfarmed. And they had come back and they had left a more prosperous life in Babylon to come back. And, and what we see here is that ultimately there was a ton of like economic failure that was happening. We see, and it says, well, why is all this happening? End of verse, what is that? End of verse nine declares the Lord of hosts. Because my house lies in ruins. Why are they going through difficulties? Because his house lied in ruins. And while each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens, sometimes you got to be scared of the therefore in the Bible. Either the therefore is there because of a consequence or the therefore is something that God is going to call you to do, right? The therefore is the application. Since I, God says, since I've done this, this is what I need you to do. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce and I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, the grain, the wine, the oil, all that brings forth the man and the beast, all their labors. They were in severe economic depression. Y'all, can we not relate, right? Uh, interest rates are high, like the world is in chaos. You know, we think uh, Russia and Ukraine is still happening. Now we have Taiwan and China. There is always something. There's nothing new under the sun. God's people are always going to deal with trial. And that's where we find ourselves. But what were they commanded in verse 8? Verse 8, he says, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. This wood is the famous cedars of Lebanon. Those were used to build the original temple of Solomon. They still to this day are some of the most sturdy and sought after uh, wood in all of the world. The ancient cedars of Lebanon, they still have forests, they're still there. But in fact, here's the underlying meaning. The stone and the masonry work that was gonna be needed to build maybe the foundation of the temple was readily available 
was readily available. That's not in God's word, but you study the land at that time, right around ancient Judea, it was readily available. They could get that stone work to do the work. Now the wood wasn't readily available. They had to work to get the wood. They had to make a plan. Laura and I, when we first read this chapter together, go down to the very last verse. It says, and they did all this on the 24th day of the month. They didn't finish the work, but they finally got back to work on the 24th day of the month in the sixth month, the second year of King Darius the king. Laura and I were talking about how the whole first chapter is 24 days. Now there's greater, greater than three weeks. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were lazy, that they were like, you know, I know Haggai, I know you told us we're supposed to do this. We're going we're gonna to take vacation for a few weeks and then we're going to get to the work. No, the 24 days was probably spent getting the cedars of Lebanon. The 24 days were probably seeing how can they put it all together so they can get the work done. It's kind of like us. We spent two months demoing our property, getting it prepared for what God is going to do. And here's the lesson in that. God's people invest in God's promises, and God's promises are hard. And God's promises require hard work. God's promises sometimes require our own preparation. 2 Corinthians, a very encouraging book. I don't have it on the screen, but I'm going to read in chapters 8 and 9. I'm going to skip around here a little bit. Paul writes encouraging the Corinthian church because he's encouraging them to take up an offering so he can bring the mission of Jesus even further. He says, we want you to know, brothers, that the grace of God, this is the beginning of chapter 8, we want you to know, brothers, that the grace of God has been given among you, and that grace in, 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 in the Greek there is talking about money. That grace, the resources that you have, have been given to the churches in Macedonia for in their severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, these things have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So for they gave not according to their means as so that I can testify, but beyond their means. Oh, you threw it up there. Thanks, Travis. So we see that the church at Macedonia, did, they were poor. They didn't have a lot. But in fact, the, the, what enabled Paul to write to the church at Corinth even, to be generous so that the mission could continue to go, Paul at this time wanted to bring the gospel all the way to Spain. He wanted to see the church in Rome strengthened. And Paul is taking up this offering, and even an offering was taken for Jerusalem, he's taken up these offerings so the work of God can go forth, and he's encouraging people that don't have a lot to give. People that don't have a lot to give. Now I know we've grown up in church, we've watched televangelists, all this stuff, and we, I know that there's manipulation in giving. Sometimes maybe it's a, a, a bad leader that manipulates because they want money to, 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 for something else that's selfish and all those things. But here's the truth. God commands us to give. And he tells us to give even when it's hard. He tells us to collect cedars in Lebanon even when those aren't close. God furthermore uses the example of the Macedonian church who gave not according to what they could give, but out of their poverty they gave even more than what was required of them. 
You can skip to chapter 9, verse 6 if you want, Travis. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 says this, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. And here's how we should give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Giving's a heart issue. Because God loves the cheerful giver. And we see in verse 11, Paul reminds them, you will be enriched. It means they'll get financial means to give back. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving. And the thanksgiving that's being produced here are people that, that are now worshiping Yahweh rather than worshiping themselves. So you're giving, when you give of your time, your talent, and your treasure, even to family church, you're giving for those who are far from Christ so that they can come and they can have a place to hear about Jesus. And they can know and experience his love. Y'all remember, I love Martin Luther King's quote where he says, the time is always right to do what is right, right? The time is always right to do what is right, even when it's hard and even when it's inconvenient. God's people invest in God's promises. Last is this. So we had God's people often ignore his commands. God's people invest in God's promises. Here's the last thing. God's people respond to God's word. God's people respond to God's word. Let me, let me remind you. Yes, I'm preaching a sermon. Yes, I'm giving you points. Yes, I'm pointing you to other scriptures. But at the end of the day, if, if this book that you have in your hands doesn't say it, it's not true. If I say it and it goes against what this book says, it's not true. That's why, I, that's why we encourage you to read your Bible every day, to pray and to share your faith. You don't have to come to a priest. You are. As Revelation chapter 1 opens up, it says that we're a kingdom of priests to Jesus, right? We have one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus, the book of Hebrews tells us. We are, we have direct access to God. And you know what? Scripture says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade and the word of God stands forever. One day I'll be in my grave, but God's word will go on. So it doesn't matter who's up here preaching it, whether it's Elijah, whether it's Andre, whether it was Mike, whoever it might be, God's word never returns void. So God's people respond to his word. Let's look at the, the, the encouraging verses of this chapter. It says Zerubbabel, the son of, in verse 12, Zerubbabel, son of Shatil and Joshua. The reason sometimes you'll see the son of Shatil or the son of Jehozadak, that there are people, y'all know there's multiple people in the Bible called Joshua. There, in fact, I'm gonna blow your mind, there are multiple people in the Bible called Judas. And so that's why he's called Judas the Iscariot, right? And so the Bible often uses, because they didn't have last names, if you didn't know Christ is not Jesus' last name, it means anointed one. You know, it's just another name for Jesus. His last name is not Christ. You know, Jesus Christ is saying Jesus the anointed one. And so what we see is they would use their lineage to differentiate who they are. In fact, maybe Haggai is wanting us to know that this isn't Joshua who took over for Moses. 
This is Joshua, the high priest, totally different guy. And it says that with all the remnant, they obeyed the voice of their God and the words of the prophet Haggai as the Lord their God had sent him. Remember this, these were words from God. These weren't words from Haggai. Haggai was simply delivering the truth of what God, that's what we talked about, prophecy. Prophecy in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture, for the most part, just points back to God's truth and His promise. Yes, there is a sense that there is a foretelling, a foretelling, but it's foretelling and foretelling and for foretelling and forthtelling are two different things, right? One is what is the reality. One is what's to come. And do you know that less than to about 10% of prophecy in Scripture is about what's to come? Most of it is reminding us of what God wants us to do here. And that's what we see in verse 12 is that they obeyed the word of the Lord. And in fact, in verse 13, it says, Then Haggai, the messenger, this word for messenger is malak. And the word malak is very similar to the New Testament terminology for uh, the Greek word angelos. And so what this means is it's simply a messenger, a messenger from God, just as the angels had a mess. Elijah and I were talking about Mary, did you know, right? Uh, the, 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 I'm a ruin, Mary, did you know now? Here's the, here's the one, Mary knew, right? Mary knew because the angel came to her and he told her. And so, still a good song. I'm not saying you should never listen to it, but it's a good song. And uh and so uh, he, Mary knew because God's messenger had brought the message. And that's what Haggai is. Haggai is simply God's messenger. Today, this sermon is not about how good Dean puts forth a message. This sermon is not about how good Dean makes me feel or how good, uh, how good uh, the PowerPoint presentation is. None of this. Travis and Dean and Laura and, not, and Reese and Abel, none of us get credit for this. This is God's message to his people. And he's calling us to respond. And God's people respond. I love what Richard Taylor says in the New American Commentary here. He says, There could be no return to prosperity or normalization of the relationship with the Lord for Israel until there was first genuine repentance and a change of heart a change of heart on the part of these people. Here's the reminder. Frequently, it is in the midst of exceptional human difficulty that God's word finds its greatest success. Let me repeat that again. Usually, it's when things are most difficult that people respond to God's word. So don't despise when things get difficult. Maybe, in fact, it's pointing you to the one who will get you through that difficulty. So God's people respond. God's people do God's work. God's people can ignore his commands. God's people, though, are called to invest in his promises. And lastly, God's people ultimately respond to his word. So will today, will you respond to the word of God? Just as Israel got back to work doing the work that God had called them to do, today God has a work for you. It's to love him and love other people. The Great Commission is told, go. And the word there for go means as you're going. So going doesn't necessarily mean overseas. As you go, God may lead you overseas, but God, ultimately, where you live, where you work, where you eat, and where you play is the mission field that he's called you to. Let me repeat that again. Where you live, where you work, where you eat, and where you play is the greatest mission field that God has given you. And if we are to do his work, 
our work is to invite as many people as we can to join the family of God. To join the family. It's not a cult. It's not a, it's not a club. It's a living organism. And we invite people to become a part of the family of God. And here's how we do it. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you don't have one verse in the Bible, memorize. I pray if you come here every week, you hear that verse and you have it memorized so that you can share that hope with other people. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not about what you do. It's about what he's already done. The war is over. It is finished. It is done. He accomplished all of it on a sinner's cross for you and me. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him wouldn't have to perish, but would have everlasting life. Here's what I'm asking you today. Two things. Two things. One, if you don't know Jesus, here we're going to have a song of response. Laura can, and the band can start coming back up, or if it's just Laura, I don't know. Uh, can come back up and uh, get playing. Um, But I'm going to invite you to respond. Elijah and myself, we're going to be in the back. And uh, we're just going to be standing in the back. If during this time of response, where you're preparing your heart for communion for the Lord's table, if you need to pray with someone, maybe you have sickness in your life. Maybe you know someone far away from Jesus who needs prayer. Maybe you yourself have something that God has called you to do and you've been fearful and putting it off just like Israel did. Maybe you've no, you don't know, who, maybe you question who Jesus is. Maybe you need to talk about what does it mean to commit my life to him? Is it about saying a prayer? Is it about doing the right thing? What is that? We would love to talk with you. It's not a six-step process. It's a one-person solution. His name is Jesus. That's why we believe that everyone who calls upon that name, Jesus, will be saved. Furthermore, next week, preparing you now, next week, we're going to have uh, some sheets sitting on all, this, all the seats here. And I'm going to challenge us as a church. We're going to have some numbers on those, uh, on those blank pieces of paper. So they're not going to be blank. They're going to have numbers. God calls us to be intentional, not just in rebuilding physical spaces, but rebuilding the broken spiritual reality in our worlds. And we know that greater than, we know 40,000 people maybe are with us in eternity, but we know that there are many more in our city, greater than a million people who don't know who Jesus is. But God's put us in, in, in the path of those people where we live, where we work, where we eat, and where we play. And this might seem daunting, but the average person knows a good amount of people. Maybe people you barely know. God doesn't, you know, God doesn't want us to like know everything about a person before we tell them about the love and hope that we have. You know, we don't have to know their social security number, bank account, all, you know, like we don't have to know everything. We have to show the love to people that desperately need it, just like the New Testament apostles did. They went town to town, house to house, village to village, displaying the love of Jesus. So next week, we're going to have a list, and we're going to list out people in our lives. My goal is going to be 25. Maybe that seems like a lot, 
Start with five, start with 10. We're gonna list out people in our lives far from Jesus who need to know Jesus. We're gonna pray over them together and we're gonna get to work together to show them the love of Jesus. So come prepared next week. Prepare your heart for next week. We're gonna do that together. So let's stand. We're gonna sing a song of response. I'm gonna say a prayer and then we're gonna have have our response time. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you've done. God, we know that your word says that anyone who calls upon your name would be saved. God, I know it's not about how well I preach. I know it's not even about how well I articulate the message, Lord, even as I'm sharing you with others. It's about your power that draws people to you. So God, help me to not be lazy. Help me to not be apathetic. God, help me, just as you called your people to rebuild the ruins so your presence could thrive. God, help us to rebuild the ruins around us. Help us to get to work. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Again, Elijah and I will be in the back. We'd love to pray with you, love to encourage you. We'll take communion here in a few moments.